Okay. It's good to be together again and to open up the Word of God. Um, we'll be looking at a number of different passages, and we'll be uh, doing a little bit of a review, but today uh, we're continuing on with this motif of walking, of following in the steps of Jesus. Two weeks ago, it was about uh, faith walking, learning from John the Baptist. And last week, it was about uh, walking on into the wilderness and learning about how Christ uh, dealt with temptation and how we follow in those steps and about the purpose of God in your life with those temptations that God uh, truly would be glorified in our lives as we respond to Him, looking to Him in faith. And today, it's on to the temple. Today, we uh, follow his steps on to the temple. Now, um, this is one that you think, oh, well, that's, that's nice. And it'll be somewhat about worship. But really, that's not till the very end of our, our, our study here this morning. Because this one, this pathway of following in the steps of Christ, this particular one of going on to the temple has more traps in it than we realize. There's a lot of traps that are set that would catch you and cause you to slip and get off the the pathway of following in Christ's footsteps. Okay? More than we would guess. And so it is with real sober precautions that we proceed. Let me explain. When we talked about uh, last time, we were um, dealing with the early part of Christ's ministry. And he was, um, in his baptism, the voice from heaven, God's voice spoke forth saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then what happened? Immediately the spirit drove him where? Out into the wilderness for being tempted by the devil. Okay? He comes back and he goes back to Galilee and starts there in his hometown teaching in the synagogue, going right there to the place of worship and training for the Jewish people. And what kind of reception did he get? He opened up the book, opened up the scroll in Isaiah and read from it. And he said, today, this this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the people actually were taken back. And this is the welcome that they gave Jesus. Their hearts were filled with rage and they started pushing on him and taking him out into the city. And the the indication or the, the thing that they wanted to accomplish was to push him off the side of the cliff in that city. Welcome to Nazareth, right? Or welcome to this little uh, synagogue here. Nice warm welcome. (laughs) So the question is, why? Why was that such um, such a negative reaction? Okay, why did that take place? And by the way, that story is in Luke chapter 4. Verse 28, we won't go there, but I just wanted to let you know, if you wanted to go look that up, that's in Luke chapter 4. So what really caused such a hateful response? Christ and his answer. In, 
in the presence of a religious system. Okay? And this very opposition that started here in this particular instance, Luke chapter 4, kept growing. The intensity of the opposition kept growing against Christ from where? The religious circles. It wasn't from the people that he was, you know, healing and ministering to out in the, you know, out in the countryside. It was from the religious circles that he was getting opposition. You know, Christ kept on exposing the religious, the, the established religious uh, setup for what it was really all about. And he was exposing the flaws therein. Christ it was noted that Christ spoke like no other one. The people that listened to him said, oh, you know what? He speaks with authority. These other guys don't have that kind of a authority. And obviously we know Jesus had, he, Jesus came and John chapter one tells us he was full of what? Full of grace and truth. Okay. So Jesus, listen, Jesus spoke like no one, nobody else. And so either the people were really amazed or they were really agitated because those people that were agitated were just, you know, just soaked in, saturated in their religious system. And mostly it was religious officials, religious experts, experts in the law, temple authorities, all those kinds of people, those were the ones that were really, boy, let's, we got to take care of this guy. You know, he spoke with authority. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus kept on saying this phrase. You've heard it said, for, a, for, for example, you've heard it said that you shall love your enemy and hate your neighbor. But I say to you, there's the, that, that uh, phrase that he kept saying to the folks over and over again. You've heard it said this, but I say to you, Love your neighbor and your enemy. And pray for those who persecute you. This is new stuff. Okay? Because Jesus came, he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. And yet, in his speech there, in his Sermon on the Mount, this is what he was coming across with. This is radical. Okay? And as Christ carried on his ministry... The Pharisees, the scribes, the experts in the law felt the piercing truth. They were under conviction, but they responded back with fight in their own hearts. And they immediately went into the attack mode themselves. They wanted to discredit Christ. You know, in John chapter 8, they, you know, the people there, they were saying, you know, well, at least we weren't born illegitimately like you they accused christ in that way well from a human perspective yeah i guess so mary and joseph weren't married yet <laughs> but see there's 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 the miracle of god in incarnation no seed no human seed from a human father in mary Mary's womb, she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Okay? 
but also, not just that, they, they, their attack also went into saying, well, you do your work from the devil. You, 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 know, you do your work by the power of Beelzebub. So they're attacking him in those ways because their whole security system, I say security system, their religious establishment was under attack from Christ. You know what? Christ was pulling down their stronghold. That's what Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 about spiritual warfare. Sometimes we think that spiritual warfare is about doing battle with the the devil and Satan, you know, getting him. You know what? That's misleading, friend. That's something that's misleading. As a Christian... We look to Jesus Christ and we remember, you know what? Jesus defeated Satan. Period. Got it? You and I face temptations. We, we live in a, uh, the presence. Of, here's sin in the world. But we keep our eyes on Christ. There's, there's teaching out there that would say, oh, you know, you've you got to name it and claim it. And so when the devil attacks you, really go after him. Tell him, you know, this and that. And tell him that and this. It, it, that's just a distraction from... You know, here's what Scripture is telling us. Okay? So, uh, you can read some more of that in the book of James where it gives us counsel, practical counsel of how to deal with it. And a lot of it comes back to you and I fleeing from what Satan would be doing. Okay, so, Christ is involved with this opposition He's pulling down their stronghold right in front of their eyes. And I said earlier that this path of following Christ's footsteps onto the temple is filled with traps, entrapments that would enslave people in their journey to worship God. Listen, everyone worships. I've said this in the past. Every single person alive worships. The problem is that the, the majority of people around us worship themselves or worship the dollar or worship who knows what. It, fill in the blank. Everyone worships. And these people, these especially the officials in the religious system there in, in uh, Jerusalem, in the land of Israel, they were, they were really worshiping. It was about themselves. It was about... Um, the glory of the the system that they had in in the temple, but as we'll see, something happened in the temple, and we'll look at that in a little bit here. Now I list these as traps that are along the way to the temple, and these traps are in our minds known as isms. Here's trap number one: legalism. Legalism is very easy to get caught up into because we are performance-based people. We're very, you know, at work, you see it, when you grew up as a little boy or girl at home, it was, some of it was there, and it's about performance. And we carry that into our religious system thinking and put it to our lives and really put it to others. And we're really good at that and putting it to others, aren't we? 
Oh, by the way, you know, you ought to do this because I do this. Okay? Legalism. Legalism is really the prominent um, ism or the prominent trap of their day. And really, I think for church-going people, it's the prominent one for church-going people. Because of this idea of performance. And you feel good when you perform because you figure God gives you extra points. Back to school, right? Get extra points. <laughs> so the base definition would be man is the law keeper. Man, emphasis there. Man's the law keeper. He's the religious high achiever. But the core problem is, the core problem of legalism is that no one can keep the law perfectly except Jesus. No one can keep the law except for Jesus. Okay? Second ism, moralism. Moralism is another trap that we fall into. Moralism is the emphasis on man being a good deed doer. And you feel good about that. You've done good deeds. And we've got that happening in this, uh, in not this century, but the past century. There's a struggle about um, true evangelistic approach in churches. And thus the emphasis shifted from the gospel to more of a social gospel. Because we got to get out there and do the work. Because that's what, you know, that's the good deed that we're supposed to be doing. So enough good deeds will eventually outweigh the bad ones. There's the subtle thinking behind moralism. The core problem is that God does not work off of your standard or my standard. God works off of a totally different standard. It's one of perfection. It's his standard of perfect righteousness. He doesn't go on your standard nor mine. He goes off of his. And you and I can think, oh, that person's a nice person. And they do a lot of good things. Some people that aren't trained in the scriptures would figure, well, they're going to heaven because they're a good person. And God is obliged to weigh out the good deeds from the bad deeds. And obviously they did enough good deeds to get accepted. That's not how it works with God. He says, be thou perfect. And you sit there and say, uh, how? Well, then he provides the gift of salvation in his son, Jesus Christ, the one who is perfect. He perfected the law. He says, Who's, who of you is going to accuse me of, of sin? No one could. So, another trap that people fall into, going to worship, so to speak, going to the temple, is humanism. And this simply is where man's the center of all things, man's the eventual answer to all things. In the end, it's all about what? Survival of the fittest. Okay? That's what's going to be ruling. Well, humanism is a, a real broad uh, kind of stroke to this, you know, thinking. And we need to understand that, you know, that's, what oper- you know, that's what's operating in our world. It's all about man-centered thinking. And so everyone gets trapped in that. You've got to recognize that for what it is. 
And the core problem to humanism is that, well, man is the creator. I mean, man's the created one, not the creator. (laughs) Simple kind of response there. Simple kind of understanding. God as the creator is going to hold you and I accountable in one way or another. He will hold us accountable. We have to answer to God. Okay? Another one that comes up. What we get, what people get trapped in is more of a self-centered kind of a thing. It's either narcissism or hedonism. I'm throwing these isms at you, I know. There's only a couple more, but those two, narcissism and hedonism, kind of go together. Narcissism is more about self-pleasure. Okay? Self-pleasure. Looking at yourself and just all being all concerned about yourself and how you look and that's all that there is. And you say, well, we don't have that much of a problem with that. Oh, I don't know. We, we allow that to slip in. Hedonism is more of the thing where it's all about everyone's pleasure. Happiness is the aim and the end of life and the chief good in life. And you see that, you know, how that attitude and that kind of lifestyle sneaks into, especially into America. All the commercials It's all about, you know, the pleasure that you can get, right? Okay? Go for the gusto. And it's all about you, brother, sister. Okay? And then the last two, also very similar, but have a distinction. Pluralism. Pluralism is a ism that says everything can add up together. Like, um, you know, it's the idea that two forms, uh, even throw them together. It all works out. For the ultimate good. Okay? Um, and really, the problem is, who decides really what those realities are? Who gets to decide that? If we're all saying, in pluralism, everything works out, you know, it, it's all gonna, you know, whatever you believe, that's okay, and whatever I believe, that's okay. Then, out of the billions and billions of people, so what does that leave us with? Who's, who's, who's right? Who, who's got the truth? Even in a room like this size, it's like, well, we got 300 some, you know, opinions of what it ought to be. Okay, so it's pluralism is the idea that there are or there can be more than uh, more than a couple of forms of ultimate reality. The other one is universalism. And that's this is the last one, okay? And then we'll move on. But universalism is the thinking that everyone now, no matter what, everyone's going to make it to heaven. Everyone will make it. So those are some of the traps on the way to worship, on the way to the temple. Now, Christ, we understand it here in, if you'll look at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Here's the connection. Here's some of the dots that we want to lay before you. The dots and connecting the dots to this business of footsteps, following his footsteps to the temple. First of all is the fact that he, he enters Jerusalem, as, as it's said, as it's stated in like your Bible subtitles, the triumphant entry. The triumphant entry. And that's the, that's the implication of a what? A king. A king entering in. 
Well, he's not the king on a white horse at this moment. That will come. That will happen. He will come on a white horse in victory. In judgment. He will come. But now in this passage, he's come on this little little donkey. Humble. You know, and, and everyone's rallying around. Oh, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're laying down the palm tree branches in front of him. And everyone's saying, hey, just start the kingdom now. Here comes the king. A very fickle following of people. Because at one point they're saying this. And not that long after they're saying what? Crucify him. Crucify him. So the king enters. But then the king, Jesus, goes to where? The temple. Okay? In Luke, um, it's chapter 19. And we see uh, his entry there. You can read it from verse 19 and following. You see the quote from the Old Testament in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Okay. Um, But then notice verse 45. Look at verse 45. Okay. Look at it. It says, and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who are selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. Okay. So from this this uh, processional uh, as king into the temple as the ones who the one who is rebuking those who are in the temple and we see there's another reference of it in john chapter 2 it says that jesus sat down and he made a a cord uh, to scourge those in the temple he sat down and he made that thing jesus did Weigh that out, my friend. Think that through. His intentionality to go in and do what? Clean house. And say, you're wrong. Okay? And really, as he has entered the temple here, we see his righteous anger. The people in this case led about by the religious officials, allowed to set up and do the market thing and do the consumer thing, they had been led astray. Here's by the religious leaders. Let's, let's go for this. Let's, let's make it a, a profit thing. Well, they had adulterated. Listen, they adulterated the temple. They perverted the temple. I want you to track along with me here. Let's do some Bible uh, uh, verses, all right? Let's get in the Old Testament. And I want you to see and listen to how God speaks to this issue. Jeremiah, go to Jeremiah. You hit Psalms, and then you got to go to your right, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, and then Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, it's chapter 2. These are some statements from God that we want to look at and see and get a taste of how God looks at this kind of a thing. Jeremiah 2, 
verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals. You are following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them. Those, In other words, those who attacked Israel. Verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of, the, of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your... What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and they walked after emptiness and became empty and they did not say, where is the Lord who has brought us up out of the land of Egypt? Who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts, of pits, through a land of drought, of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt? And I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit, its good things. But you came and defiled my land And my inheritance, you made an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after the things that did not profit. Therefore, I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your sons, sons, I will contend. Drop down to verse 11. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What an indictment. This is serious. Here's, and now here's Jesus. He comes into the temple and he's not playing around. Okay? Um, look at the same chapter, verse 26. Verse 26 says, The thief is shamed when he is discovered. So the house of Israel is shamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, who say to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth for they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise, save us. Oh, God, save us. OK, this is the judgment on Israel. And here's the culmination of it at the rejection of the Messiah. Got it. And he goes into the temple and he says, you guys are wrong. Just mark these down. These, these are other Old Testament verses I want you to look at. Hosea chapter 4, verse 4 through 10. And also Amos. The book of Amos chapter 5, 18 through 24. That particular one really strikes deep in the heart. I hope that you'll read those on your own time. Okay? Those verses, along with just the ongoing reading through the prophets. Okay? It's verses like these that show us why Christ had such an angry response to the money changers, to the Pharisees, especially to the Pharisees. Read Matthew 23. We're not going to look at it. But woe after woe directed at the Pharisees for their 
hypocrisy. Okay? And Christ uh, condemns them for their hypocrisy and their condemnation. And what is it all about? It's about how the, these officials, these leaders, have led the common people, and the common people show up to the temple, and you know what happens? A lot of these folks, they're walking to Jerusalem. They say, you know, it's, if you look at the book of Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent are about people singing songs as they go up to Jerusalem to worship. But typically what happened in this time was that people, their families would go, they'd have their animals ready for sacrifice. They'd get to the temple area and the, the officials would look at it and say, well, you know, you're going to have to go get another lamb. That's not acceptable. Well, where is he going to go get it? Well, he's got to turn around and go to local Walmart. Which was right there in the court area. And he could go, you know, it was like they could, you know, go, go get whatever they needed. And so it was a nice, sweet little setup for, you know, for the, those officials and all. And they would gain more and more money, more profit for themselves. You know, it's like you go into a baseball stadium, guys. You know, you just wanted a little drink of, you know, a bottle of water. And you got to pay 10 bucks for it or something, you know. You're trapped in the stadium. Well, that's the kind of thinking that it was for these folks. So, Jesus now steps into the temple and and what we see is just a, a demolition, if you will, of what the intention was supposed to be about. And it was all about self-made or self-centered desires, man's selfish desires. Okay? And obviously, consumerism had taken over. Consumerism had taken over there. Okay? So, it was corrupt in God's eyes. It had been perverted, adulterated, violated. It was God's. God's temple. And it had been violated. Hey, do you, re- you remember times where you've had somebody, you, you walk into your office or your home or whatever, and you realize somebody's broken in? What's one of the first things you feel like? I, it's like I, I've been violated here. Somebody crossed over and grabbed my stuff or stole this or stole that. That's what people did to God's temple. So Christ was angry. And then eventually, Luke 21, he predicts the destruction of the temple that would be fulfilled later on in 70 A.D., and it was just raised. Temple just knocked right over. Now, I'm taking a little bit of a, a jump here to what Christ accomplished at Calvary. Okay? What Christ accomplished at Calvary was giving you the key, the one key that's required to enter into the temple. And that's the gospel. It's not about legalism keeping the law. It's not about moralism, being a good person. It's not about anything else, ism-wise. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that there's the key to enter into true worship. Because worship is in all sorts of ways, all sorts of forms. But true worship is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And Christ gives the key. Do you have the key? 
Do you have the key? And what exactly is the temple? Okay, well, we need to talk about that. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the key to open up true worship unto God and Jesus, even the Holy Spirit. So the gospel is the key that opens up our access to the, tr- to the temple for true worship. The gospel, listen, the gospel is not about saying, I accepted Jesus. That's a response to the gospel, and it's not a very accurate one. Got it? That's a response to the gospel, but it's not a very accurate one. We, we allow it, we talk about it, you know, or we say we receive Jesus. That's still a response to the gospel. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is, is just that. It's a message. It's a proclamation. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. Are you gonna, what are you gonna do with Jesus? There's the gospel. And it, it matters how you respond to it about because of he died. Why did he die? Because of sin. You have sin, I have sin. We've gotta respond to his gift. He, he went there to the cross to offer himself up as the perfect sacrifice for all sin. Mark it down, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. For this is the gospel that I received, that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. And then he appeared to people. That's the message of the gospel. And you can't change that. You can reject it, or you can receive it. And believe it for yourself, that Christ died, was buried, and rose again. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the... Let's do it together. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So, if you believe, if you say, I'm a Christian, I believe, then the gospel ought to be the power of God for a changed life. So, we break the gift of salvation down into three parts. The gift of salvation. Point number one is, having, I've been saved from the penalty of sin. Point, that's it. I've been saved, past tense, from the penalty of sin. Then secondly... Salvation is this. I am being saved from the power of sin. And that's where a lot of us struggle with. Because we add in, we, we kick into the legalism thing there. And we think, well, I've got to... Well, we've got to remember, it's God, God's pleasure to work and to will His good work in us. Philippians chapter 2. Okay? And so, the, pro, the gift of salvation is, I've been saved from the penalty of sin. That's justification. I am being saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification. And do you, do you wrestle with that? Is that something that you struggle with and wrestle with? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Keep turning to Christ. Keep trusting Him. 
Then the third one is glorification, which is, I will be saved from the presence of sin. We'll be taken out of this world. And God will set up his new heaven and his new earth. But no sin. That I, will, I will be saved from the presence of sin. I have a hope. And this is the, this is the gift of salvation. So with the key of the gospel, now I can truly worship. Mark down Psalm 84. We're not going to look it up or read it. Psalm 84 says, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. How lovely they are. And my soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. That's getting towards the temple. That's not in the temple. That's just in, here's the courts of the Lord. I long for that. Psalm 84, verse 10 says, A day in your courts, O God, is what? Better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, there's there's the setup. Do you have that longing in your heart for the courts of the Lord and to worship at His temple? Do you have that longing? For the believer, you, believer in Jesus Christ, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. There you go. And having the Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our lives, we come together corporately to worship Him and lift up praise to Him. Okay? But it's the gospel that introduces you to true worship. And so is that happening in your heart? Or are you just... Do you come to church and just kind of read the words on the screen when we sing? Or are you entering in to true worship? And let me ask this. Let's, let's take this another step. You know what Christ did according to Luke 19. You know he walked into the temple and what did he see? A consumer-filled temple. And what does he see in your temple What condition is your temple in, Christian? Are there too many idols packed up and and leaning on the side of the temple? I mentioned it before. I mentioned it yesterday. The men, John Calvin says, our hearts are like temple uh, idol factories. We we produce idols. So, I, we have to be challenged in this. What condition is your temple in for worship? Is it overcrowded with junk? Is it overcrowded with, with clutter? With all sorts of expressions of self-desire? And we hold on to them. We maintain, we, we, we hold on to it tightly, thinking this is, this is where I'm going to get my satisfaction. No wonder we're so weak. No wonder we're so frail when it comes to tough times. Because we've got all sorts of little uh, earthly trophies we're holding on to and things that we think are going to give us hope. 
What's the condition of your temple? And what happens when you come to church? And what happens at home? I want to challenge us in this way about not just waiting for Sunday morning to, to, to worship. If you're a Christian, you are an ongoing, 24-7, perpetual worshiper. That's the way it ought to be. What's really happening in the temple of your life? Jesus' words speak to our hearts right now. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. That's not stated for the future glorification of heaven. That's stated for now. That's stated to a church. That's stated to believers. Because believers allow stuff to get in the way. Legalism, moralism, all sorts of the traps. We allow it to get in the way. All sorts of idols. And Christ is knocking on the door saying, if you let me in, we'll have fellowship and you'll worship me. So, what's it going to be, my friend? If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to bow before Him. Because eventually, when, once you die, you'll answer to God. And you can't give any uh, excuse or, or plea bargain with God. And say, well, I did these good deeds. What do you think, God? They outweigh my bad ones. He's going to say, nope. What did you do with Jesus? What did you do with my Jesus? So, we're going to... um, I'd love to talk to you afterwards about it. If you don't know the Lord, if you need to have faith in Jesus Christ, if you need to understand what is the gospel, the world that we live in has been really good at putting up all sorts of stuff and garbage and clutter in front of the gospel. But it's our task, Christian, to make sure we know the gospel and that we have a good grip on the gospel for ourselves and for our children, for our families, and for sharing it with our friends and our neighbors. We're going to close the service here with a song. We don't usually do that. We just kind of pray and say, hey, have a great day. But here's the response for you to worship. The response is that you would worship a risen Savior, Jesus. I'd like to have the instrumentalist uh, folks come up. Listen to this passage. Listen to this passage. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him. The Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Does that stir your heart? To shout joyfully to Him and to praise Him. You know, I know, I know. A lot of times I say, come on, let's... I'm the kind of the song cheerleader. Come on, let's lift it up. If I have to do this today at this song, 
We're in trouble. <laughs> Christian, lift up your praise to the Lord. Shout joyfully to him. Let's stand together.